Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project Podcast with Kareem Farah, Kate Gaskell, and me, Zach Diamond. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 41 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Kareem Farah. I'm the co-founder and CEO of the Modern Classrooms Project, and I am joined by co-host Zach Diamond. Zach, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Awesome. These episodes are some of our favorites because they're the Q&A style episodes. This is the sixth one that we're doing. Part of the reason why we really like these is because we get to field a broad variety of questions from the community. Some of them come from the Facebook group. Some of them come through emails. Some of them come through the Ask MCP model. And it's a really great way for us to just field a bunch of questions from educators who are implementing, learning, and wanting to grow. So super excited about this one, Zach. Um, We have some really great questions. But before we get started, Zach, can you just uh, share a little bit about Where you're at in the school year, I mean, I'm not a teacher. You know, I work full-time, obviously, at the Modern Classrooms Project. Um, But where are you at? Is your school year closing? How are things going? Yeah, no. So we're actually still going. We get out June, I believe, June 24th, if that's a Thursday. We have quite a few more weeks, actually. And we're currently in hybrid. So we we moved back into a hybrid model. Well, I say back into a hybrid model. We moved into a hybrid model for the first time from fully virtual a couple weeks ago. And uh, that's where we're at now. I mean, we're... You know, teaching uh, hybrid is difficult, and um, there was a, I, we, I recorded a, a whole episode about this of this podcast uh, with a colleague of mine a couple of weeks ago, which I'll link in the show notes. But yeah, I mean, you know, learning hybrid sort of trial by fire right at the end of the year has been interesting, and I feel I feel better prepared for next year definitely, and I am looking forward to the summer uh, when I'll have a chance to sort of decompress, but. You know, at this point, things have sort of settled down with hybrid, and we're just teaching on until the end. We go back to fully virtual for the last couple of weeks of school, so that'll be nice to be able to sort of return back to what I had established as a sort of new normal. That's just my unique situation, though, uh, in my school. But yeah, closing out this year is going to be interesting. I don't have a classroom to clean up or anything. I mean, we're teaching sort of in different classrooms. Everyone's moving around, so there's no association with a room which is weird to me i mean my that's such an end of year ritual for me is taking the stuff down from the walls putting things in boxes but this year just gonna close out the year and be done teaching and so yeah it's it's a weird weird end of the year a little bit on a lot of uncertainty but but yeah and were the kids how do they respond to coming back i don't think you and i have talked about this but like once you all started to create a structure where there was hybrid was there a, a slow adjustment period for kids, or did they seem to dive right in? You know, I'm not exactly sure how to answer that, because different groups of students are reacting in different ways, and some of them are, like, not returning to the normal that I was expecting. The sixth graders that I teach are very energetic, very much they need to move around, they want to talk a lot, and that's sort of always how sixth grade has been, and it felt very normal to me immediately. Right. Like they walked into the classroom and it was like, bam, sixth grade energy. But then I have eighth graders who, you know, I would teach. I teach seventh and eighth mixed classes. And last year, you know, in previous years, they would 
you know, they wouldn't have the, the energy of sixth graders, but they would still want to talk and they would be, you know, they would have energy and want to move around and want to collaborate and things. And this year, some of those classes are very quiet and they're still that way. So I wouldn't say that they've adjusted. They're still the same way. Um, I don't know if that's because they're just used to sitting at home quietly or if it's maybe because they're really small groups in some cases. I don't know what it is, but, you know, it's it depends, I guess, is the answer to your question in different groups like the the younger kids. It was it sort of just felt like going back to normal and the older kids feel a little bit more a little bit more distant than uh, than I was expecting. You know, what I think I keep hearing from school and district leaders and teachers is exactly what you just described, which is there is not actually sort of a one way of describing students return experience, partially because every student is different, right? Some kids thrived, some kids struggled, and there's everything in between. And I think we're seeing that very quickly. And it speaks again, more than ever to the need for models that are adaptable, can personalize to kids' needs, provide multiple modalities to learn. So it's an interesting kind of learning experience because there's a ton we can learn from how kids experienced the last 13 months differently. Obviously, students who experienced trauma and really just struggled as a result of literally COVID, that's a different category of struggle. Um, but for students who, you know, didn't struggle with the virus itself, but instead, you know, we're navigating hybrid remote in-person instruction, there's a lot to learn about what kids did well, what kids didn't do well, and what different learning styles kind of grew and, and struggled in those moments. So I just think it's a really interesting thing that we all need to be paying attention to and likely will speak more and more to the need for models that can truly differentiate. So very, very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think just to sort of piggyback on that, you know, a lot of kids on Zoom, I don't know, like they were more comfortable chatting me and kind of being like, can you be quiet or get to the point and let us work now, <laughs> you know? And then back in person, it was like, why would I, why am I talking so much? Like, why, why am I standing here talking? And I'm a modern classrooms teacher, you know, right. like I'm fully bought in, right. but kids are now sort of accustomed to like having the work be much, much less teacher centric and much more available. And so it's like, I'm standing up there in front of the kids and it's like, what, do, what do I actually need to do? Like, what do I need to do in order to get them started? And what can I cut out to make it so that they're not just listening to me for no reason or not listening to me, as the case may be? Totally. And it's going to be a demand from them. Yeah. Folks are going to need to be prepared for it. Yeah, it is. That's what that's that's been my experience. It is. Yeah, exactly. Super interesting. Well, let's go ahead and dive in. We've got a bunch of questions. Let's see how many we can get to. I'll go ahead and start. The first question is, I started running my self-paced unit today. My students so far have responded really well. I'm trying to figure out what I should be doing with myself now. I bring a lot of energy to my instructional time, but now I don't have to. I can just float around the room monitoring work and helping kids through their guided notes. So essentially, this question is, what do I do with my own time as the educator? I'm used to sort of being the leader at the front of the room. Zach, what are your initial thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that the question has the answer in it. It says, I can just float around the room monitoring work and helping kids through their guided notes or, or their other work. That is the answer that I would say. I do that. That's 100%. It would If you walked into my classroom on any given day and just looked at me, that's what you would see me doing is walking around from student to student and helping kids. But there is some method to that. Like, you know, in the morning when I grade my mastery checks, I will look at who needs that support and make a plan as to who I'll check in with. But from the outside to an outside observer, that's what you would see is just me walking around checking in with kids, maybe from time to time walking back to my computer. Well, certainly now I'll be going back to my computer and checking in with the Zoom kids. But, you know, in a normal year, I would be maybe checking some mastery checks in class. And at that point, I would ask students to not 
check in with me unless it was like an emergency. Um, I would separate some time to check their work. But generally, the question basically has the answer in it. Yeah, I mean, a couple thoughts here. First, if you're wondering what to do with your time, never underestimate the power of relationship building. I think educators are so used to having so much of their time just like planned out, essentially micromanaging their own time because they have to. Once you have that freedom, like the first thing you should think about, especially early on in the process is just go chat with some kids. Obviously, you don't want to distract them, especially students who've struggled to stay focused or now focused. But, you know, I always say, if you have extra time, do an individual check-in with each kid, every single one of them. It can be content-focused, it could be sort of goal-setting-focused, or it can just be, how are you doing? The second thing I always tell folks is, like, nothing stops you also from pre-planning discussion topics or questions that you actually want to pose to kids in groups. I actually did this my first year of implementation about halfway through. So I would actually write out the three most important or essential questions that I wanted to ask kids for each lesson. So, you know, if I was dealing with like similarity of shapes in a geometry class and I really wanted kids to understand proportional relationships, like I would pose an open-ended question around proportional relationships. I'd write it down on a piece of paper. I'd have three really important questions and I'd actually when I did have that free time, would just go around to different groups of kids individually or in small groups and just pose the question and then get in a little bit of a discussion around it. I didn't necessarily track this data. I could have, but instead it was my opportunity to create another layer of sort of checking for mastery and also intervening when I realized that student actually has no clue the answer to this essential question, but they're working on assignment. So it's time for me to intervene and say, hey, come up to the whiteboard and chat with me or I'm going to hold a small group instruction on my table because I want to talk you through this. So you can pre-plan those discussion topics and then ask them in these smaller settings, individually in small groups, and it just provides you with another avenue to have rich content-focused discussions. Some folks see that as valuable. Some folks see it as an unnecessary thing to manage. I think it depends on your student population. I think it depends on the kind of challenges you're facing with the, the size of your class, how talkative are students, how, how much are you struggling to keep them engaged, are you overwhelmed by grading? But if you're really struggling with like, hey, I have a bunch of extra free time. That's one of my favorite strategies. And it's really powerful because it just leads to really healthy and rich conversations around the content you're teaching. Yeah, yeah. You know, I feel like I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Teachers, we have this term teacher talking time, right? And the focus is always on like, how can you reduce your teacher talking time? But I always wonder like, what are we and what are the kids supposed to do in the non-teacher talking time? That should be the focus, right? Like the independent work time. And Modern Classrooms gives you that. All the things you just said, what's in the question, you know, it gives you that. And we can actually build in really productive stuff to do in the non-teacher talking time, you know, in the independent work time that we, you know, give a lot of to our kids in a modern classroom. But they're it's it, they're well-structured minutes, you know. They have stuff to do. And it's one of the things that I love most about the model is how many different ways I have to structure that time in which I'm basically free. Totally. I mean, I would switch it up. As you said, like, there's not one way to use that time. You know, some of them can be just time for you to just observe your students and see their different behaviors and see the way they navigate self-paced learning and come up with new sort of executive functioning and or like 21st century skill lessons to support them through the process. Again, you can just call kids down individually to your own table and do gold setting. I think it's a really fun opportunity. You know, I think most teachers wonder, how they're ever going to find extra time. So I would capitalize on that, but I'd definitely start with relationship building. I think that's the first part. All right, let's move on to the next question. Zach, do you want to ask this one? Sure. 
Can any teachers who have gone back into the classroom compare and contrast their experience implementing the model remotely versus in person? What's different and what's the same? I'm going to obviously let you answer this one, Zach, and then share my insights from all the folks that I've actually chatted with as a result. But given that you're a person who's actually done this, I'd love to hear your thoughts first. Sure. So first of all, I I already mentioned that episode that I recorded a couple of weeks ago with Alexa, my coworker at DCI where I teach. We talked almost for an hour about this very topic. So I'll link it in the show notes. But, you know, I think that one of the I'm 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 struggling to articulate this, but modern classrooms is sort of the the fundamental structure of my class. It doesn't change in between the two. And I'm teaching in hybrid, but I remember last year, you know, last school year, very abruptly with no preparation leaving school, right? And I remember basically telling kids and having kids understand, which is I think a, an important point, this class is not going to change that much because you're still going to watch instructional videos at any time, right? You're self-pacing. I will check your mastery checks after you've done the work. And the kids got it really very quickly because again, like fundamentally, the class is the same. And I guess the biggest differences are the certainly the relationship building time that I can spend with kids because I do love chatting with students. But (laughs) this year, I've been making a big deal out of that, how much I love chatting. But I have to say, like going back into the classroom and just talking to kids was there's nothing like that. It's, there's no substitute for that. Although some of them would prefer to chat and that, that's fine, too. But for the kids who want to talk to you, that is the biggest difference for me is being able to look a kid in the eye, you know, and speak with them. I for had to forego my guided notes because my guided notes were very much on paper. And so this year I haven't really been using guided notes and that will come back when we go back fully into the classroom. That's another difference. But the similarities so greatly outweigh the differences in a modern classroom that's virtual and that's in person that I think that the model, for me, it was like the answer to the transition. Like how do you transition in a way that the kids understand and the teacher doesn't have to make multiple different plans for different groups? The model is the answer because fundamentally very little changed, but I do get the opportunity to to build those relationships more strongly now. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to summarize what I've learned, which is very similar to what you shared from all the teachers that I've communicated with. So first things first, much more difficult to do small group and individualized instruction, which is very frustrating to the challenge of remote learning and naturally is a huge benefit of being able to go back in person. Second thing is just generally accountability systems tend to be weaker at scale in the virtual space. So being able to check a kid's guided notes, being able to go up to a kid and say, hey, you're not using time effectively, being able to have those one-on-one sort of motivation conversations with students. So you see a higher percentage of students who maybe would have struggled in the in-person setting, but are like almost falling off the map completely in the remote setting. Well, so yeah, like when a student is a gray box on your Zoom call and they're not doing any work, you really have no sense, you know, you have no sense of what's going on. When they're sitting there in the classroom with you, you can see what's distracting them. But that's not a particular change to the model, right? Like pedagogically, everything's the same. It's just that now I know how to support the kids who need the support. Yeah, exactly. I mean, essentially what people are saying is the model is the best shot I got in remote. But some of the ways that we love to leverage the model 
to support students are less effective. It's much harder to coach kids on sort of executive functioning and 21st century skills. It's much harder to intervene when kids need support on the content. Like little things like that are just more challenging. I would say the only thing folks have said to me that is almost like a benefit of merging the model with remote instruction is folks that initially have pushback on the implementation of the model do not. In other words, like everyone's essentially particularly students and parents, are very appreciative of educators when they implement the model in the remote and hybrid space. When you go back in person, you probably will experience a greater number of folks saying, you know, why are my kids learning on computers? Or are you really teaching them? Or I want you to be at the front of the room, right? These kind of like desires to regress towards traditional practices still tends to be a fairly small percentage of students in the in-person setting. But that critique is like almost non-existent in the remote and virtual setting because naturally you can't teach traditionally really unless you want to just talk through a Zoom. And those are just so disengaging for so many kids and parents that they don't actually want it. So Those are the main reflections I have on that question. So the next question we have is, how do parents react to the MCP model? I'm concerned that I will get pushback from parents who don't want a new and shiny educational model being tested out on their kids. Hmm. This one's interesting. Uh, I've, you know, I've never gotten that particular response from parents that something's being tested out on their kids. But at this point, I'm not testing it anymore. Like it's my, I'm teaching with the model. That's the way that it is. But parents like the model, really. I guess in some cases where students tend to do really well in terms of grades and the self, you know, the responsibility that comes along with self-pacing has sort of hindered them a little bit, uh, not academically, but just sort of in terms of executive functioning, work completion, that kind of stuff. Those would be cases where I might expect somebody to to reach out and be like, what's going on here in terms of the model or maybe pushing back. But Parents respond so overwhelmingly positively to the data that I give them. And, you know, when, I, when I'm interacting with a parent, I can say, like, your child needs to work on lesson three. Like, there's just there's so much clarity with the model that parents really appreciate me essentially directing them exactly to what the kid needs to do, and then they can help the kid do it. You know, it's the same clarity that helps the kids find the work. You know, it's it's just a very clear model. And I don't even have to call it modern classrooms, right? Like, I can just say, like, the student needs to work on lesson three today. And she's four lessons behind or something like that. If I'm really concerned about something, I'll reach out and give very specific data to parents. And they appreciate that. And that's, I guess, when I think about communicating with parents, that's the the thing that comes first to mind is that I've had so many appreciative notes from parents, even from kids who are way behind, that I'm so clear about what the kid needs to do. And it, it comes from the data. Basically, it comes from my pacing tracker, right? That's public and available to the parents, available to me, available to the kids. And it just helps to keep everyone on the same page. Yeah, I mean, you know, what I would say to this question is I would frame it differently, which is first, like, it isn't sort of a tech product. It's not like the new sort of widget or new platform. It's just good pedagogy in our opinion. Yeah. And I would frame it that way, right? You can tell your students and your parents, you know, I am teaching through a blended self-based master-based approach. You know, the purpose is A, live delivery of information is not particularly engaging and it doesn't allow for me to let students work at their own pace. Kids learn at different paces and ultimately I want to assess students on mastery. 
And when you frame it that way, it's all about the pedagogy. It's all just like logical, great practices. So that's the first thing I would do is just not frame it as like, I'm launching a new model. I'm testing it out. Instead, just say, hey, this is a pedagogy that I think makes a ton of sense. I like it and I'm going to use it. Second, you know, if you actually do get questions about sort of impact and it being tested, our Johns Hopkins report is pretty compelling. And the, the researchers at Johns Hopkins who conducted that control study, you know, make a direct reference to there being overwhelming support for the model. So there's a ton of research actually about our model that I think is pretty compelling that you can certainly point to. But ultimately, the biggest concerns folks will have about the model is usually just a fear that their kids are learning through screens and they're having less time with the student. And I always tell folks, as long as you can reiterate and confirm to parents and students that you are more available you are unlikely to get that many concerns or critiques. Um, it's just that's that's the reality of it. If parents find out that you are spending more time with their kids and particularly intervening when they're struggling and you're available to help, they're going to be excited about that. And it starts with the kid themselves. Parents usually complain when their kids complain. It usually doesn't happen in reverse. So just make sure that the kids feel supported. Make sure that they appreciate it. Don't frame it as a new shiny thing because it really isn't. It's essentially putting together in a structured blueprint a lot of pedagogical strategies that have been researched for years. I mean, there's a ton of evidence to support why self-paced learning is effective for kids. There's a ton of evidence to support why mastery-based grading actually increases overall outcomes. And blended learning is the way you can get to those, those two core ideas. So I would really focus kind of your delivery of why you're implementing the model through just effective pedagogy, as opposed to sort of opening up yourself to potential criticism by saying, I'm trying this new shiny thing. That's my biggest piece of advice. And ultimately, most folks support it. And most folks get really, really excited about it. And if you do the model well, it will kind of prove itself. um, And you won't need to do much explaining, which I think is the best part about it. Yeah, 100%. I have a a little email that I send to all the parents right at the beginning of the year. It's very short. And it says, my class works by students watching instructional videos and then completing mastery checks at their own pace. And then I'll put in the email, this comes from the Modern Classrooms Project, blah, blah, blah. But really the framing is, is on, you know, how does this class work? And parents have, haven't really ever pushed back that much to me. Yeah. And what I like about that, Zach, is it's not like an open question. You're not sort of like saying I'm testing this. You're saying, no, this is how I teach. Yeah. Um, and keep in mind that you have the full freedom to teach in the way that you think is appropriate. Um, assuming that you're obviously abiding by all regulations and rules. And I would frame it that way. Right. It's absolutely about the framing. That's that's the point I was making. Like the way that you frame it to parents could make a difference. But if it's just the way you're teaching, it's not like a big deal. It's not a thing even, you know. Totally. Fundamentally, we're teaching, they're learning, and then they're being assessed. Like that's that's not changing. 100%. 100%. Awesome. Let's take a look at this next question. So it says, I'm wondering how people keep cheating down for mastery checks. I know some people do them on paper and use colored paper, but I really want to have my students do them on GoFormative because it grades most things instantly and I can track their progress by state standard. So given they will be on the computer on GoFormative, I would appreciate ideas. For example, do you have designated quiet time during class period for mastery checks? And have you arranged the room differently for this? Um, Zach, I think you mentioned when we were reading this question that you didn't necessarily have a ton of ideas on this. Is that right? No, I'm going to defer to you on this one, but that's because I don't, uh, I let my students collaborate on their mastery checks. Like they're doing projects. They're not exactly taking tests. So it's not something that I use in my classroom. And so I don't, I don't, I'm going to, I'm going to let you go and take this one. Sure. Well, the first thing I would say is 
one of the easiest ways to eliminate cheating is to actually create mastery checks that are novel each time. Now, this can be difficult. So I'm imagining the teacher asks this question doesn't have this capability because of the type of content. And I struggle with this too, right? If I taught sort of a very clear math skill, it was difficult for me to create multiple versions or so many versions that each skill was novel. For example, I know some educators in the math setting who will literally let the kids write in their own numbers. Oh, wow. So every kid's actually writing their own number. So the problem is different. So they have to kind of show their work. And then essentially, it's very difficult to cheat. I would say there's two popular strategies when cheating really becomes a problem. The first thing is exactly what the person said in the question, which is to designate mastery check times. So one of the best implementers of our model who's been on this podcast a number of times, Shane Donovan, used to have mastery check Thursdays, basically, which means every Thursday, if you had mastered three lessons between last Thursday and this Thursday, you're going to take three mastery checks at the beginning of class, and then you're going to kind of pivot to the self-pacing again. So really creating a structure around when folks are taking mastery checks and also allowing for sort of a retention challenge, right? Kids now have to remember how to execute mastery check number three, even though they mastered it five days ago. So that's one way to do it. Super simple way. Um, It just requires a little bit of rescheduling. You know, the other option is to always think hard about how you can ask your kids to explain themselves. Now, this can be done by a written word or it can be done kind of verbally. And usually depends on the challenges you're facing. Not that many kids are actually cheating. You have a smaller percentage of kids than you think that are actually cheating. The bulk of students are doing their best and trying to execute on mastery checks. So if you think a couple kids are cheating consistently, then just ask them to explain themselves and say to everyone, you know, we've noticed that some kids seem to be, you know, not necessarily doing the mastery checks with full integrity. So I'm going to be randomly pulling kids and asking them to explain how they got their answers on their mastery checks and just go from there. And usually that actually just freaks kids out who cheat, which is what you want, right? Because now a kid really doesn't want to get called on when they haven't actually understood the skill. Um, So those are the two most popular ways. Certainly plenty of folks also do the reorienting of the room. So in the free course, we talk about this idea of sort of mastery check zones. So, you know, you can have a zone of your room designated exclusively for mastery checks. That's where you go to take your mastery checks. has to be completely quiet. Um, Those are all popular strategies that I think work pretty effectively. You know, I actually do have something to add based on what you just said. You reminded me that idea of having students sort of justify their answers or, or explain how they came to the conclusions. So, so my mastery checks are screenshots of a of an online digital audio workstation. So the students make songs using this tool, right? And then they have to screenshot their work and then they have to annotate it. Sometimes my students who are working in groups, some students might slack off and ride the coattails of other kids who are doing all the work. This is something that's happened forever in group work. And this is actually, this is also an idea that I got from Shane, who is a wonderful teacher with great ideas about everything. He was like, because I asked him, why don't you have your own project with screenshots of your work and have the kids who you're not sure if they actually understand annotate your screenshots? So... That was a really good idea, too, because then it was like the must do is to take the screenshot and show me that you've completed the step. The should do is to to mark it up and explain what's happening in the screenshot. But for kids who I'm not sure about, I'll give them my screenshot and say, if you understand what's happening in your screenshot, mine is essentially the same. And so show me where the voice is or show me what is a region. And it's not exactly a test, 
but it, it's just a check to make sure that the student who did submit a screenshot actually understands what's in the screenshot. Uh, I love it. I mean, essentially, when students are cheating in a modern classroom, just ask them to articulate their understanding of the skill in another way. And it will become very clear to them and you that they don't actually understand. And at that point, you sort of let them know. It's quite clear that you didn't actually master the skill. And then pivot the conversation around how they're going to actually master it and why or how they were able to sort of show that they mastered it on a mastery check but not actually have mastered the skill. That's nice because you've reoriented the discussion around this idea of mastery. Part of the reason that calling kids out on cheating in a traditional setting is not that great is because the discussion is actually not focused on mastery, right? Kids are just getting sort of partial grades, you know, five out of 10, six out of 10, three out of 10. So there isn't really this discussion around, do you understand the skill or do you not? In a modern classroom, that's what it's about. So if you're questioning whether a kid understands a skill, just pose a question um, in, in a written form or auditory and, and see what they say and then build from there. All right. So let's move on to the next question here. It says, I want to implement the model in the fall for the first time. How many units should I have planned in advance, ideally? I love this question. Um, the reason why I love this question is because, I mean, you may be asking it to just be like, how much time do I need to invest in planning? But I think is what I love about the question is it kind of opens the door for constant iteration and shifts. Essentially, if it's your first time implementing the model, you might want to be careful immediately assuming that you're going to do it right on the first unit or the first couple of units. And you want to re leave room to kind of adjust the way that you execute it after learning from your first attempts at implementing the model. So I would say one to two units fully planned that buy you about two months worth of instruction. Because if it's your first time implementing, you're probably going to learn a ton in that first month. Are you going to radically change the way you plan your units moving forward? Unlikely. A lot of it's going to be about how you kind of articulate what lesson kids are on, the way you use a tracker, the way you pace your time, the way you use your own personal class time. But you also might find out different things about the way you build your instructional videos, the way you create your guided notes, the way you've structured your mastery checks that you want to pivot, change, shift in future units. So I would say for sure one unit in advance, two even would totally be fine. And then you can make some adjustments from there and then go from there. Once you get comfortable with it, see its benefits, then you can start cranking out a lot of units at once. But if it's your first time implementing, that's what I would do. Yeah. I You make a great point, though. Actually, I hadn't thought of that about refining your your sort of modern classroom's chops, you know? And if you look, if you look at my very first videos compared to my current unit that I'm teaching now, almost two school years later, there is a big difference in the quality. Um, I got a lot better at it. I was actually going to say that the I, I was lucky because I, when I did the Modern Classrooms training, I did it with you in person. And so I got constant feedback. So I was pretty confident as I went into my first unit. Now, my units are pretty long, so I, I only had one fully planned. But it was fully planned by the time I started school, which for me was novel. <laughs> I had never, ever been that far ahead in my planning. My units had about 10 lessons, 8 to 10 lessons. So I was like set, you know, for the first month two months maybe month and a half of school and so i got started working on my second lesson uh, my second unit and that was great i think that if you can get the jump on these units it really 
takes the pressure off your planning periods and your planning in general. And so having some something ready in advance has was really great for me. I'll say this though, the the second year, I have all six units planned already. Like I'm done because I'll make, you know, small adjustments to my units, you know, on a one-off basis, maybe, you know, cuz some of my lessons I think are perfect. I mean, they're not perfect, but they're ready to go and I'm not going to change them. Some lessons I am. And so in my second year, not for the first time, I have a lot of units planned in advance and it's really great. But yeah, if you can get the jump on the planning in that first year, uh, it'll free up your planning time for the year because you'll you'll basically be a whole unit ahead of the kids, which for me was very pleasant. It was very nice. Yeah, you know, one other piece of advice too that actually came from last week's episode that I recorded and it was reflections on year one of implementation. And as usual, I always learn more about the model myself when I'm talking to folks. Is Amanda Arbuncle, who implemented the model for the first time this past year at elementary, she mentioned the fact that she actually tested it on her own kid, who happens to be a student at the elementary level. So, I mean, if you do have access to just like some students or kids, it can be brothers and sisters, they can be you know, nieces and nephews, your own kids, friends, kids, and can just test out a few lessons on them. Um, Or even an adult, right? Like an adult can travel through a lesson totally fine and pretend to be a student and generally be pretty good at figuring out where there's kind of gaps. That's another way to reduce the risk um, that you might be sort of rolling out the model and have some big functional issues with it. Um, Because ultimately, the things that most people change the most are kind of how they facilitate the model, which has very little to do with the planning that goes in on the front end. Um, So that will kind of screen whether or not your instructional videos are easy to understand, whether they take too long to do, whether your guided notes are well aligned, whether your mastery check speaks to the assignment, which speaks to the video, you know, all those elements you can get screened on the front end by testing it out on some folks too. So I always love that idea. Yeah, I thought that was really funny. I thought that was really cool when she mentioned that. Totally. I wish I had done it myself. Yeah, totally. All right, this next question says, has anyone started to implement the model in one classroom and not others? Has anyone begun this way? Any great things about it? Zach, um, remind me, did you implement in all of your class periods at once in the different preps that you had, or did you start kind of bite-sized? No, no, I did 100% modern classrooms. I have two preps, so I did it with both of them. I mean, they're very similar preps. There's you know, music one and music two, sixth grade, and then higher grades. And so, yeah, all of my students were in my class doing essentially the same thing in terms of the model. And I've mentioned this before at DCI, where I teach, we did, we did the training in person uh, and there were several teachers, you know, several teachers who did the model. And so particularly sixth graders had two, three, four modern classes and then my seventh graders had like me and maybe maybe another class. Uh, and there was a difference. The kids, you would see the kids under, learning to understand the model and using the vocabulary of the model. Like they would say to me, the ones who had lots of modern classrooms classes would say, have I mastered lesson three yet? Or can you check my mastery check? Things like that, which I thought was kind of cute. Not so much so with the seventh graders and the eighth graders who only had my class, right? And I do see the kids who are in lots of modern classrooms classes 
just more quickly picking it up. Same for same for this year, my second year using the model with my students who I taught also last year, right? Like they just hit the ground running when they joined my class and I didn't have to spend any time explaining it to them. They skipped the lesson zero. I made the lesson zero like an optional aspire to for kids who had had my class before because they they totally get it, right? You you could have had my class even for just one semester and not the full year and get it. But I wouldn't say that there are any drawbacks to being the only classroom. You know, because those seventh and eighth graders, they still picked it up. I, I I didn't do anything differently at the beginning of the year to teach them the model. It was just that the younger kids who had more modern classrooms classes, they were sort of like steeped in it. They understood it a lot better. But all of my students were learning my content equally. In fact, I've talked about this before. The sixth graders struggled more because of my implementation of the model, which wasn't differentiated well for them. And so it wasn't familiarity with the model itself that affected their learning. Um, it, you could, you could see the effect of the, of the, of having more modern classrooms classes, but it wasn't a deal breaker in any way for the students learning. Yeah. You know, I think if I remember correctly, I did by the end of the first year of implementation, do it in every single classroom, but I started with one of my preps and did not do it in my IB classes. Um, and part of the reason why was because those classes actually had a lower diversity of learning levels. It was sort of a tracked class. Um, so lecturing wasn't, frankly, as miserable um, as it was in my classrooms with a higher diversity of learning levels. The benefit of doing it is seeing just how different teaching and learning is when you do it side by side. Usually what it does is actually expose just how ineffective traditional approaches are to teaching, and it makes you more excited to convert all your classes over, which is why I've coached many a teachers who've said, I'm only going to do it in just one prep, and then I'm going to roll in the next prep the following year. And then they just within a few months are like, I can't uh, continue teaching traditionally in my other classrooms. I got to convert everything over. There's a lot of power there in essentially seeing how different traditional teaching is from a modern classroom by doing it side by side, essentially. Because a lot of what happens is when folks roll out our model in their classroom, they really appreciate it. They really love it. Um, But they also forget sort of the ineffective nature of traditional teaching. So when there are challenges, for example, we'll hear sort of the question about how do you motivate students who aren't using their time effectively? Well, that isn't a modern classroom challenge. That's just a challenge of teaching and learning, right? But it can be easy to forget that once you've started something new. And usually the easiest thing to sort of point to when you've tried something new is to say, I bet it's probably something wrong with this model. So there's a real value in teaching side by side to see like, oh, I'm seeing the same problems in both models, which means that's just a challenge of teaching and learning. This problem only exists here. This problem only exists there. Really being able to piece that together. And certainly if you can, I mean, if you wanted to run your own study, and for example, if you taught four different sections of seventh grade history, it's the same history class, and you wanted to roll it out in only some of them, then you could actually measure to some degree, obviously, different students mean different outcomes, but measure sort of the performance in each of those classes across a variety of metrics, both academic and social emotional. And that's always really interesting. So most teachers who start this model will start slow by picking one prep, one element of their instruction, and then rolling out in their other classrooms. There's benefit to that. But many teachers also do exactly what Zach does just because they don't want to teach traditionally for good reason um, and roll it out in all their class periods. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So this is our last question of the evening. And this is, I'm going to defer this one to you again. I might think of something to say, but here's the question. I am the only person in my school or district at the moment who is experimenting with the model. 
What is the best way to get more educators involved and potentially start a PLC? And the reason I'm going to defer this one to you is because, like I said, many teachers at my school are doing this, so this is not my experience. Totally. Um, well, hey, I love a person's asking this question. One of the key values of our organization is that teachers drive impact. So ultimately, it's when teachers ask this very question that we see the model get into more teachers' hands and better instruction for students. So I just love that the question is being asked. You know, I always tell folks, the first way you introduce people to our model is the Edutopia video, generally. Now, if you're an elementary teacher, maybe that's not the best way. So maybe show an exemplar unit, which can all obviously be accessed on our website and through the free course. I'll also link those in the show notes. Perfect. Um, and those are just kind of great ways to initially expose folks to it. And one of the things that often we talk about is like, make sure you have your theory of change in place. You really want to get teachers to understand like, what bothers you about teaching and learning now? Usually, an inability to differentiate instruction as well as you want to. Not being able to spend as much time with their students. Not feeling like you have an accurate picture of their ability level or their mastery. You know, all those kinds of ideas. And then say, hey, well, this model presents a potential solution to that. At that stage, you really want to get folks in the free course. And the easiest way to get them in the free course is maybe bring a meeting together. It can be a faculty meeting. It can be a group meeting and say, hey, you know, I really think you all should enroll in this free course you know, here's how it works, so on and so forth, and get folks enrolled. We actually now have a free course guide that we'll make sure will also be in the show notes. And that free course guide is a guide designed for teacher leaders, administrators, district leaders to be able to share this model out at scale with their educators. Oh, cool. Basically provides different options for what other folks have done in their respective schools and districts because we've seen a number of schools and districts actually carve out professional learning time in a day, on a PD day, and just have every teacher go through the free course just to get exposed to it. Because even if a teacher doesn't want to do the model in full, it's just really valuable to know that the model's out there, the different ways to record instructional videos, the different ways to structure self-pacing, and naturally the different ways to execute mastery-based grading. You know, some folks take to the next level and actually navigate a full PLC, and we have PLC resources. So if you go on our website at modernclassrooms.org and you go to the teacher resources section of the website, you'll see actual PLC resources, which are just sample slide decks folks can use to execute a PLC with a community. So you can bring five, seven, ten teachers together. You might meet with them bi-weekly or bi-monthly, go through these slides, build out the resources and, and tools necessary to implement them on your classroom and really build a professional learning community around it, which I think is super cool as well. Um, finally, you know, I always tell folks, if you want to take it to the next level and your school and district leaders are actually behind this in a powerful way, then you come to us directly. You know, when you go to our page and you go to the what we do section, if you go to school and district partnerships, that walks you through essentially how you can actually get your school or district to partner with us so we can train and mentor a cohort of educators. That's the most powerful way um, to essentially take it to the next level and really build out implementation at scale. You know, we have folks that will just enroll five educators in our program. They'll get their mentors, they'll travel through and start implementing and then grow from there. And then we have other partnerships that are way more intensive where you have a combination of mentoring, site visits, where we actually watch classrooms in action, implementer discussions, where we host discussions weekly or monthly with the teachers, um, and really take this sort of intensive approach to supporting a school or a community of educators. So all of those are ways you kind of can build that interest, all starting small, right? Just initially build the kind of understanding around the model. Why is it valuable to do this? What are you struggling with now in your classroom that you can change? From there, making sure you provide them with the best resources, mainly that free course, 
get them involved in the free course, get them learning, and you can leverage our free course guide to help with that. And then if there's real appetite, particularly at the leadership level, then you can potentially pursue a much more intensive partnership that includes the mentorship and potentially ongoing support. So those are all the ideas. Additionally, if you're a teacher who's saying, I want to do this because you're feeling siloed, like you're feeling like you want to collaborate with folks. You know, I always tell folks, get on our Facebook group, certainly, because that's a really easy way to connect with others. Um, And if you want to be a part of the mentorship program, especially because we often launch scholarship programs, then you also can connect with mentors, get into our Slack group and start communicating with folks that way. Um, So those are my biggest pieces of advice there if you really want to connect with others. So I think that covers it. Yeah. Gary, you just you just had me typing like crazy. Like I just added like six things to the show notes. Awesome. So all that is linked down there. And you know, I you obviously answered the question much better than I could, but I will say that there is so much value in in a PLC. Like we did my my first year implementing the model. You would come and do school visits every couple of weeks. Actually, you would come to DCI, and all of us would sit down together. It was nothing super formal. Usually, it was like a lunch, and we would just sort of be talking about. Oh, how's your pacing tracker look? Or how are you doing master checks? I'm having this problem. Can you all help me with this? It was just really valuable. I learned a lot from a lot of other teachers who were implementing for the first time at the same time as me. And that, I mean, if you look at my materials, like a lot of that stuff is sort of like taken piecemeal from what other people were doing. And also some was made up by me. Really valuable to have a a group of people who are, who are working through the same stuff that you are and you can help each other problem solve. So, yeah. Fantastic. Well, I think that covers it for today, Zach, as usual. These are super, super fun. We just get to touch on such a broad variety of topics that I think is super interesting. Um, To everyone out there who are closing out the school year, congrats. You have made it to the end or close to the end. I hope you get some time to rest this summer. If you're part of our Summer Institute, I hope that's a time to sort of reset and learn something cool and new without being super, super overwhelming. Zach, as usual, wonderful chatting with you. Thanks for jumping on. Absolutely. Thank you. As everyone knows, you can access our work at our website at www.modernclassrooms.org, our free courses at learn.modernclassrooms.org, and all of our social media accounts are at Modern Class Proj. And we are actually, for the first time in 41 weeks, which is pretty wild, we are taking next week off. So there will be no episode next week, but we'll be back at it the following week. Enjoy the closing out of the school year and the beginning of summer, folks. And we look forward to running it back in a couple of weeks. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org. And you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj. That's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students and schools. Have a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Podcast.